Good morning, Foothill. This morning's scripture is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now the, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Life was difficult. Financially, I think we can safely say the economy was probably in trouble. We know from Scripture that there was extreme poverty and hardship. We know life was probably difficult physically. There was no doctor. There was no hospital to run to. We know life was probably difficult emotionally as they were dealing with the anxiety of their surrounding circumstances. I'm sure life was difficult spiritually speaking, right? That is that this was a group of people who were being harassed by the culture. Uh, they couldn't meet together, uh, uh, partly because they didn't have a church building, right? So, so what I'm describing, of course, is the church in Thessalonica, but maybe I could just as easily be describing the church of the 21st century. This is the situation that Paul writes into. Now, now, now what's interesting is if, if that was you and you were writing to a church like that, what would you say to them? And maybe let's say it this way. What would be your parting words to them, right? Parting words are really significant words, right? Before Jesus gets taken up in Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples, right? His final parting words are these momentous words that come. What, what, what would you say? If you had to sit down and write a letter, what would be the final things that would come out of your mouth? I want to leave you with this. Would it be some, you know, I've got to give you some profound insight. I, I, I've got to, I don't know, I've got to give you some really great motivational speech. I've got to give you some slogan to carry with you. You know, it comes a hashtag or something, right? What, what would you say? This is what's fascinating to me about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 because look at what Paul does here. Paul's advice to the Thessalonians is so ordinary. Like in some ways, Paul seems like unconcerned about everything we just talked about. He says nothing about their hardship. He says nothing about their suffering. He says nothing about their poverty. It's almost like, God, Paul, do, are, are, you, are you tone deaf? Paul seems 
way more concerned about them and their relationships and this church, this little infant church, than he does about the external circumstances of their lives and the culture around them. I don't know if you've seen, hopefully you have, uh, Pixar's WALL-E, a great movie. And uh, of course, it's about the little robot who's kind of a garbage trash compactor and he's cleaning up a dirty earth. And one day he finds this little bud of a plant and he's a collector, so he grabs that plant, doesn't know what he's got, takes it back and stores it in his collection. And then the other robot, Eva, comes down and she discovers this plant. This is her whole reason for existing is to, is to see this plant and, and uh, organic life, see if now earth is shaping up for organic life. And she takes it, she actually brings it inside of her, right? Puts it in her belly, if you will, and then is a custodian of that, watches over that. Now, the subplot of the movie therefore becomes not just a love story, but it becomes how do you protect? The most important thing is not cleaning up the garbage of earth, the most important thing is holding on to this symbol of hope. The most important thing is cultivating this organic life so that it can grow and blossom and take over this world, take over the, 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 the ugliness, the trash, right? Well, listen, I thought about this because I think this is a great picture of the church. This is why Paul is so concerned. Yes, there's a lot going on in the culture, Yes, there's a lot of things to be, we, we might feel fear, fearful about or anxiety about or, or, or wondering about. And Paul says, let me, let me focus your attention where your attention should be. It's on the nurturing of this thing that we call the local church. It's making sure that in the end, this harbinger of hope, this little garden in the midst of the ruins grows into something that can nourish everything around it. This is what's happening here, right? This is, this is, this is what, why Paul takes the time to do this. Remember, remember here, here's the order of how things happen. Paul preaches the gospel. People are saved. Churches are planted that preach the gospel. So people are saved. So churches are planted. And on and on it goes. So Paul says, we've got to make sure that every church, Foothill Church, the church in Thessalonica is as strong as it can be, okay? So now watch what he does here. How does he do that? How does he emphasize this? Well, the first thing I want you to know, he's really gonna, the overarching idea in this is he's gonna say the church is like a family, Okay, now this is not new. Uh, you're gonna see this throughout scripture, right? We're called brothers and sisters. But in these, these verses 12 to 28, Paul uses the word brothers, and we could say legitimately brothers and sisters six times. In other words, he wants us to see that, that we are a family, that churches are this grouping of brothers and sisters. And by the way, I hope that you're feeling this in acute ways right now as we are all ordered to stay at home, as we're all sort of isolated from one another, that there's this kind of, man, the absence is making the heart grow fonder, and I hope we never again take for granted the fact that we get to meet together and that we're a family and that this would become something way more precious to us. So, so that's kind of the overarching idea. But now, okay, Paul's gonna speak into this group of people that's suffering, saying, okay, I wanna motivate you because you're a family, and he's gonna say, here's how you should live. Here's how I want you to think going forward. Here's my parting words to you, okay? So now watch what he does. First of all, he's gonna talk about family leadership, 
Okay, he's going to give us a picture. Every family has to have leaders. So look what he does. And I won't spend a lot of time here. He says, verse 12, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. You see what Paul does? He starts by talking, look, I want you to relate to your leaders in a proper way. And the reason I don't have much to say about this, I feel like what Paul said earlier to the church in Thessalonians, he said, man, you have no need for anyone to write to you about this because this is an area where you've excelled. I've never felt a lack of esteem from you. I've never felt, we as a pastoral staff has never, have never felt a lack of, of respect. There has been peace among us. But I want you to notice a couple of things that Paul says, okay? I want you to, let's look at these, just these two verses really quickly and notice he says, first of all, leaders must work hard. You see that? We ask to respect those who labor. The idea behind labor is really hard work. He says, you should respect people like that. They labor. They're working hard. Foothill, let me just say this. Your staff has worked harder in the last three weeks than we've worked in a long time. Right? This has not been a downtime for us. And I don't say that to whine. I say that that's just been our reality. And I hope, I, I just want to say this to you. It's easy. I stand up here. You see me. You know my name. You don't know. You don't see all the work that's going on behind the scenes on your behalf. It would be appropriate for you. To, to text, to DM, to, to call, to, to write a note to the uh, staff members that you know. I mean, I think about the worship team up here. I think about Ike and Lucas and Tucker. I think about our spiritual formation team with Stephen Coppenrath and, and Steve Dobransky and Katie Dobransky and, and Chris Gannon and, and, uh, and Daniel Kaler. I think about Ethan Bailey and all the hard work he's been doing. I, I think about our administrative assistants who are still doing work. I, th- I think about Angie Vincent. I mean, uh, uh, John White and all the operations that are still happening in HR and with Joel Pilgreen and, and with, with, uh, with Mercy Rusley. I mean, in other words, my point here is that we ought to say thank you. There ought to be an esteeming. There ought to be a respect for people who are continuing to work hard. The second thing I want you to see is he says leaders must admonish. Now notice what he says here. He says they, that you should respect them who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. You should actually respect people who admonish you, right? Who warn you not to go over the edge of sin, who stand in the way, who say, man, you're headed down a dangerous path, right? So this is what, 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 what leaders should be doing. We should be. You shouldn't resist that foothill. We shouldn't resist that from one another, Right? We should, in fact, say, man, I'm so grateful that there is somebody there who cares enough to warn me. This is not, by the way, this word admonish doesn't have this harsh, angry idea behind it. It's a very brotherly, sisterly term. Like, man, I love you, and I don't want to see sin hurt you. And so I'm admonishing you. And Paul says that's what leaders should do. But then notice he says church families must live at peace. Again, I I don't have much to say about this. To say my last 13 years, I would say, have been characterized by peace. Foothill Church is a place that has known, I feel like, a supernatural unity and peace from God. And I'm so grateful for that. So that's, that's church leadership. But really where Paul's gonna spend the most of his time, yeah, that's how you should relate to leaders, but now he's gonna say, how should we relate to one another? And this is what we'll call family fellowship, 
okay? And this is going to be almost the remainder of the entire sermon all the way down to verse 22. But I want you to see, first of all, this rapid fire of imperatives. Do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do that, be this way. I mean, Paul is, and he, and he says, well, I want to urge you in this. This is an urgent call. This is how you should behave. And here's what I want you to notice. Start in verse 14, because Paul, and we urge you brothers, and now he's going to go on to say, so, so he is admonishing, this isn't just for pastors to hear, that one of the jobs of, of us as brothers and sisters is that we engage one another, that we help each other grow spiritually, that we admonish, you're going to see this one another in all these different ways because sanctification, our growth into Christ's likeness is a community project. I can't do it alone. Okay, so Paul is going to say, all right, so let's talk about these relationships. And notice he starts off with three groups, the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. You see that? Look at verse 14. And what does he say to do? First of all, he says, admonish the idol. Same thing he said that pastors, that leaders do in the church, we're to do to one another. Let's remind ourselves what idleness means. Idleness is not um, being unemployed, as many people are right now. Idleness is when you can work and you are employable and there's an opportunity before you, but you just decide not to. Let me say something that's incredibly culturally relevant right now. Congress just passed a bill last week, right? That extended unemployment benefits. And in fact, um, increased them by $600 a month. I think it's through the summer or something like that. Here will be the temptation for some of you to say, I will take the unemployment benefits because they actually turn out to give me more money than if I were to go back and work for my employer. I think that's a, a, a point at which we can say you need to be admonished. We should be seeking for gainful. We should be trying to be really good employees, really hard workers, rather than just living off the public. Now, again, there's some that have to. So this isn't a criticism of, of that as a, as, a, as a system. That's just saying there's some of you to which that should not apply because you're capable. So we're to admonish the idol. Second of all, he says, encourage the faint-hearted. That word faint-hearted is great. It's a, it's a word that literally means little-souled, shriveled up, right? Like a timid, weak, afraid. Now, now by the way, I bet as you think about the idol, the faint-hearted, the weak, I bet all of us will find ourselves in this, these categories at one time or another over these, you know, you've already felt it, you're in it right now, or you will feel it. You feel weak. You feel timid. You feel afraid, right? And, and what's the answer? Stop it? The answer, he says, is to encourage people like that, literally to fill them with courage. Now listen, this isn't motivational platitudes. This isn't the cat hanging from the bar that says perseverance. This is filling them with words of hope and promise from Scripture of saying God is with you. God has not given up. God's promises are real. Take hold of those. Minister to one another. Encourage one another with this. But then he says there's this other category, the weak. Now let's talk about this. I think what Paul is referencing here is um, are people who are struggling, battling, and losing the battle against their sin. 
So I think about this. Um, there's a lot of people stuck home alone or isolated in some ways. And boy, you're starting to see this teasing things out of your heart. There's probably far more pornography happening right now. We talked about this as a church staff this week. There's probably tempers that are flaring up. There, there's probably anxieties, despair. There's all these things. That, that, and he says we're to help those who are, are weak. So, so we're in a battle, but here's the thing. Paul's gonna say that battle should never be alone. You don't have to battle. You don't have to wage the war against porn all alone. You can let somebody into that struggle with lust, with any of those things. You don't have to battle it alone. God will help you. And here's the thing. See that word help there? That's a really interesting word. It's a different word that's most often used. And it has this idea of, of essentially holding on to or clinging to. Or we might even say this, put your arm around the weak. Don't, don't yell at them and tell them, I can't believe you failed again. It's saying, come alongside. Let's do this for one another, Foothill. Let's be the church that in this season we're checking in with one another. We're putting, if you will, a virtual arm around one another through Zoom calls that we're all familiar with now and FaceTime and phone calls and all these things. Say, man, I'm with you, brother. I'm with you, sister. And I will fight the battle with you. Now look what Paul, how he ends verse 14. Be patient with all of them. Because isn't it true? Like, look, look back on those. When we're the ones who are idle, when we're the ones who are faint-hearted, when we're the ones who weak, are weak, man, we want everybody to be patient with us. When somebody else is, what happens? We lose patience. Now, come on. Get up and start working. Come on. Don't be so little-souled. Come on. Don't be so weak in the face of your sin. No, he says, man, be patient. Don't write them off. Love them and be patient with them. Now, let's keep going. Verse 15, he says, do good and not evil. Look, he says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. In other words, don't retaliate. Now, probably what Paul is dealing with here are, are Christians in this culture that are being persecuted, and it very often happens when Christians stop being persecuted, we become the persecutors. In fact, I think this is a, a cycle of any kind of persecution. You just follow what's happened in different segments of our population. That when they finally come out from under persecution, they begin to retaliate. Hear me, Christian, that's never the Christian response. Vengeance is never the thing that we take into our hands. So Paul says, don't do that. Don't do evil to people. Seek ways to do good to them. Seek ways, as Jesus said, even to do good to our enemies. To do good to those who would use us. You see how this would be a radical, a radical concept in our culture if they actually saw us living this way. Like they would look and say, there's something different. There's a different ethic. They're operating by a totally different system. And they're right, we are. A completely different world. So he says, man, don't, don't seek to retaliate, right? Listen, if you do that, it'll kill your marriage. It will paralyze your parenting. It will separate your friends and it will ruin the church's witness in a dark world. The right response is we do good to each other. And I hope, I hope Foothill, the, the world is seeing that in spades right now. 
from those of us who name the name of Christ. Verse 16, he says, rejoice always. Now again, let me just keep reminding you, who's he talking to? Paul doesn't just say this to a group of, you know, hey, everything's great, rejoice always, get that, Paul. No, he's talking to people who are in the midst of hardship, like severe hardship we learn about in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Extreme poverty, severe affliction, he calls it. And to them, he says, rejoice always. How in the world are we supposed to rejoice in the midst of COVID-19? Christian, how in the world like, do, we, do, we, do we obey a command to feel something that we don't feel? I think here's the answer. For the Christian, we always have something to be joyful about. Paul said, Paul said to Timothy, right? I mean, the same guy that says, I've learned to be content in every situation, in poverty, whatever, he said to Timothy, he says, man, if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. I've got food in my stomach. I have clothing on my back. I mean, think of all the things that doesn't include. And Paul says, I'll be content. Christian, listen, if we just would stop, and this is what some of us need to do. Michelle, I remember years ago, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, Michelle I was, I was in a funk, man. I was in a place of, of depression over something that had happened. And Michelle, as it were, came to me and in a very like admonishing way, she grabbed me and she said, Chris, sit down and start writing everything you're thankful for. And I mean every little thing. She says, there's things that you can rejoice in. We can rejoice. Why can we rejoice? Because for a Christian, right, we can look and say, look, there's always something. We've been saved from eternal suffering. We have the spirit of God inside of us, right? We have treasures laid up in heaven where moth and dust and economic failure can never touch. It's secure. So if we'll stop and think about it, we have much to rejoice over. Okay, let's keep going. He says, pray without ceasing in verse 17, right? How, how's that possible? I don't think Paul is saying, hey, stop every day. You know, I think Martin Luther's one says, man, I can't start my day without praying three hours in the morning or something like that. Uh, I, I don't know if that's necessarily what Paul's saying here. Great, if you can pray like that, especially in a time like this, maybe you've got less to do, pray more. But, but I think what Paul's saying, that it is possible for the Christian to remain in constant fellowship with God constantly throughout your day. Some of you know exactly what this is. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit. The Spirit is inside of us. So if that's true, and we remind ourselves that God is always with us, God will never forsake us, He will never leave us, He's right here. In fact, He's not just sort of standing next to me. He's, as the Bible talks about, inside of me. I'm inside of Him. When I keep that in the forefront of my mind, I will remain in a constant attitude in connection with God where now I'm in constant fellowship. So we can, Paul says, one of the things we do in the midst of suffering, in the midst of our culture, how we live is we pray without ceasing. We retain constant fellowship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Look at verse 18. It says, give thanks always. This is sort of along with rejoice always, right? There's something to be thankful about. 
That's what Michelle told me so many years ago. Chris, you've got something to be thankful for. And by the way, notice he says, because this is God's will for you. We've talked about this before. What's God's will? He told us in chapter four, it's holiness. It's you walking in holiness, being more like Jesus. But now he says, God's will for you is also that you would be thankful. You would have a spirit that looks around and can always find something to be thankful for. Now again, who's Paul writing to? What's their circumstance? Can you imagine some of your final words to a suffering people and to suffering or a suffering person? Imagine sitting at the bedside of a Christian dying from COVID-19 and saying to them as part of your final words, thank Jesus. This is exactly what Paul's doing. Give thanks always. There's always, now why would anybody do that? Because they realize that God is utterly in control. Do you know, Christian, this is one of the things that sets us apart. We can thank God for our suffering. We can do what James tells us. We can count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds because we know it's producing something. So Paul says, man, Give thanks. God's in control. God for the Christian, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But now look what he does here. Verses 19 through 21. He says, don't quench the spirit. Let's look at that with me. He says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Now, this is interesting because it's almost like Paul is headed down this one route. I'm, I'm talking to you about your relationship with the other, praying for each other, rejoicing in each other, like not doing evil, doing good. And now Paul seems to take this like st- extreme right turn and say, by the way, don't quench the spirit. I don't think we're meant to yank this out of context and analyze that verse on its own. I think we're meant to see this fit within the context of verses 12 through 28. So how would it fit? What would it look like? Well, let me, let me, let me kind of give you a phrase that might help you fit it into. We quench the spirit when we ignore the promptings that would lead us to be obedient to verses 12 to 22 to 28. And let's say it this way. We could expand that that would lead us to be obedient to Scripture. You know that? The Spirit of God is never going to lead you towards greater disobedience, but more obedience. But how often are we prompted? Let's just use these verses. How often are we prompted to admonish the idle, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, but we don't? That's a quenching of the Spirit. How often don't you retaliate, but we do? How often, I know I could rejoice now, but I won't. I know I should be in this fellowship, but I won't. I know there's things I can be thankful for, I won't. This is the prompting of the Spirit to develop you into more and more like Jesus Christ. And this is one of the ways we quench them. We quench the Spirit of God through that. Now, look, I don't want to take this out of the supernatural realm. He says, don't quench the Spirit, right? So I think that could apply to everything before. But going after, don't despise prophecies. 
What's a prophecy? Well, there's a couple things we could say. It could be a supernatural foretelling of a future event, or it could be a supernatural forthtelling of what God has revealed in Scripture. Listen, wherever you land on that spectrum, charismatic or not, hear me. Um, what Paul is saying is don't despise it. Listen to it. Now, don't listen without discernment. One of the ways we can quench the spirit is we just despise them. I don't listen to anybody. I don't listen to somebody preach the word. I don't just listen to a prophetic utterance. But he says, but test everything and then hold fast what is good. Test a prophecy. Test the words that I'm saying. And then hold fast to what is good, okay? So I think, I think we, can, we can quench the spirit when we listen or we take in words, lots of stuff on the internet right now, lots of stuff you can be watching on TV, you know, that's just junk, and say so you take that without discernment, that's, question, that, that, that's quenching the spirit. But also just I refuse to listen to anything, that's quenching the spirit. If we take it into a supernatural vein, I think Paul's saying, look, um, we quench the spirit when we rely on anything for power in ministry and fellowship when we can come together other than the Holy Spirit, right? I think I can do this because I'm clever enough, I'm good enough, we've got the physical strength, we've got the financial resources, whatever. No, he says we should rely in that sense. We deny some feature of his supernatural work. I think that'll quench the spirit. We legislate against the spiritual gifts. I think that will quench the spirit. So, so I think these are all ways, but I, I want you to see it in the context there. Now, look at the last thing Paul says in verse 22. He says, abstain from every form of evil. Here's the catch-all. When all is said and done, right, it goes back to chapter, uh, to, to, to chapter 4 and verse 3, right, that we're supposed to be holy, so, so, so abstain, like don't, don't let yourself be engaged in things that are sinful and any form of evil, right? Doesn't matter, like don't, don't even, don't even like, like get close to it, walk away from it. This is, this is how pure God says we're to be set apart for him. Now, this is a lot, isn't it? I mean, just look back over verses 14 to 22, right? I, I, I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine imperatives that Paul says, you and I, this is your rule for living. This is how we are supposed to, this is the command for you and I to live in the midst of suffering, in the midst of bitterness, in the midst of hardship. Here's the rules for life. Act like a family. Do all these things that I've given you to do. Love your brothers and sisters. Do good. Don't do evil. Now, now here's the, the temptation. How do you obey that? Because, right, the, 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 the inclination is, all right, I better get going. I better pull myself up by my bootstraps. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, you know, work hard. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And no. So, so let me show you how Paul finishes this. Look at, look at verse um, 23. Now may the God of peace himself, look at how he says it, sanctify you completely. And may your 
whole soul, your, your, your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be kept blameless? Who's doing the keeping? God. Look at verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. We could say, parentheses, even when you're not, he will surely do it. See this? What a promise. So when I look back and I feel the weight of verses 12 to 22, and oh my goodness, I've got to do all these things. There's all these commands. These are actual commands of Scripture that I'm expected to obey. I look back and say, okay, God, you're going to be the one who finally does it. You're going to be the one who brings us about. See, here's the thing. If God isn't at work in our lives, we're hopeless. We have no power. The, it's, it's God's grace. It is the spirit. It's that grace-empowered, spirit-empowered effort on our part that produces these kinds of results. I'm not saying there's no effort for you, Christian. I'm saying if that effort is apart from God, if it's saying, I'll just do this by myself, I'll try to just be a good person, we're going to fail. But if we look and say, man, because I know Jesus Christ, because he has now, he has now filled me and, and, and come into my life and I'm in him and he's in me, therefore, he's gonna be producing things in me. He's gonna bring, I should, let's put it this way, I should be able to go back through verses 14 through 22 and I may not see them perfectly, but I can look back and say, I can see where God has helped me. I can see where God has helped me admonish and encourage and help and do good and not evil and rejoice and pray and give thanks and not quench the spirit. Have I lived this perfectly? No. But I see the work of God in my life. He's doing it. Paul says to the Philippians, surely a different context, but he says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. It is God's will to will to work and to will in you for his good pleasure. What a promise. I praise God for that. This is how, Christian, as we look at it, our world right now, this is what Paul would say, man, I know you're in crisis. I, I know things are difficult. And if we ask, how should we live? Scripture gives us the answer. Let's pray. Father, uh, we love you and we thank you for your word and I pray, oh God, that you would um, sink this deep into our hearts. Lord, the, these are the marks of those who have been uh, purchased, have been redeemed by Christ. And so I pray, God, we would begin to see these things work out in our lives. I pray that we'd see these things in relation to one another. Not, not, not just for our own life, but looking and saying, man, how can, how can we be part of a community that will build up and, 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 and will help release these kinds of behaviors among us that will encourage these kinds of things? And this is the, the sort of thing that we're hoping to see. God, help us, even as we're separated from each other, to love each other like this, encourage each other like this, help each other like this that we begin to see these fruits of the Spirit uh, be born out in our lives. And God, I pray, I pray especially for those perhaps who are watching right now who, who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. God, maybe they've thought, hey, going to church or you know, having sort of religious thoughts now and again or trying to be a good person, but they realize that 
that, that, that isn't it, God. It's, it's, it's turning even from those things and realizing I, I can't save myself no matter how hard I try, that today would be the day they would turn from that sin, they'd turn and put their faith in Jesus, and they would be saved. So God, would you allow that to happen today? Would you bring that about in the hearts and minds of the young and the old, all those who are watching, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.